We're going to consider today the last of the five solas of the Reformation, soli deo gloria, to God alone be glory. So this is the culmination of uh, five weeks on this series. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5, and uh, the bulletin is wrong. The page number is 994. So either if you brought your own Bible or you could reach under the seat in front of you, use the Pew Bible. But Revelation chapter 5, page 994, and I'm going to read the entire chapter. Listen carefully. This is the word of God. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, The four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation." You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the sound of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Let's come before God in prayer. Let's pray. Lord God, truly you are glorious, far glorious than we can even understand with our sin-clouded minds. But Lord, we pray that you would enable us today to see your glory revealed to us in the scriptures. Pray, Lord, that the stumbling words of a weak and sinful man would not cloud or obscure your glory as you reveal it to us in your word. We pray that your word may speak clearly to us so that we might see you and might give you the glory alone that is due to you alone. We ask this in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. J.S. Bach would write at the bottom of all of his church compositions the initials S.D.G., Soli Deo Gloria. It's interesting that our offertory today is also by J.S. Bach. I'm sure he would be very happy to be included in a service where Soli Deo Gloria is the theme. This is really the summation and the capstone of the five solas that we've looked at. We looked first at Sola Scriptura, which speaks to our standard of belief. Where can we find truth? Where can we know these things? And we find it's in Scripture alone. And we looked at sola gratia, grace alone, sola fide, by faith alone, and solus Christus, in Christ alone. And these all speak to how we are saved. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, only through the power and the sacrifice of Christ alone. And then soli deo gloria, speaks to our worship of God. If all these things are true, what should our response be? Our response should be that God alone should receive the glory. James Montgomery Boyce, former pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, said this, That is, it is not only the case that a grasp of the first four solas leads naturally to soli deo gloria, as I said earlier, It is also the case that a loss of concern for God's glory undermines and eventually casts off the other solas. That was the beauty of the Reformation, was that they understood that man can take no pride, no glory, but it all belongs to God. As we mentioned earlier, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, one of our secondary standards of belief, the primary standard, of course, being the Bible, begins with asking about glory. What is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God. And that is entirely appropriate. As John Calvin said, it is not very sound theology to confine a man's thoughts so much to himself and not to set before him as the prime motive of his existence zeal to show forth the glory of God. For we are born first of all for God and not for ourselves. I'm going to give you a phrase that may sound strange, but I think it's true. Doctrine leads to doxology, or theology leads to doxology. When we understand who God is and what he has done, when we begin to really and capture that in our minds and our hearts, The response must be doxology. It must be a word of praise, praising him for who he is and what he has done. In the book of Romans, Paul is setting forth what is probably the most complete exposition of the gospel in the New Testament. And as he goes through this book, he begins and he talks first about our sinfulness and our lost estate. And he talks about God's righteous judgment upon us and God's faithfulness. But he also talks about the righteousness that comes through faith that God provides and how Abraham was justified by faith, how we have peace and hope because of this, how we have death through Adam but life through Christ, how even in our struggle against sin, we know that God will give us the ultimate victory. 
And he talks about his concern for Israel and their falling away and how God's sovereign choice has determined these things and yet how Israel will be brought into repentance. And at the end of all these 11 chapters of this heavy and deep theology, what does Paul do? He explodes in a doxology. Romans 11, starting with verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Doctrine leads to doxology. And today I'd like to look at the glory of God under three headings. The glory of God, first of all, is completely pure. The glory of God, completely perfect. And then finally, the glory of God, completely praiseworthy. First then, the glory of God, completely pure. I fear that often we don't fully understand or give recognition to who God is and how pure and perfect and holy he is. In the book of Exodus, Moses asked God to show him his glory. And it's interesting the response that God gave to Moses in response to this request. Exodus 33. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock, When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. God says to Moses, you can't handle my glory. It's more than you could handle. You don't know what you're asking. I am too pure, too perfect, too righteous, too holy for a sinful man to really experience that. And so I'll give you a glimpse. I'll cover you with my hand, and you can see, as it were, his back, but not his face. So the glory of God is so pure that even Moses, one of God's most intimate and trusted servants, can't handle it. That's the God whom we are dealing with. That's the God whom we praise. Further on in the scriptures, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet had a vision of God. And we read about his vision in the beginning of Isaiah chapter 6, starting with the first verse. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, 
and the temple was filled with smoke. And Isaiah's reaction, Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah recognized, I'm a sinful man. I can't, I I shouldn't be in the presence of this holy God. His train of his robe, think of just the end of the train of a bride's dress. The train filled that magnificent temple. He couldn't even begin to understand how perfect and holy God is. And so he recognized, I am a sinful man. I shouldn't be here. And then finally, one more example in Revelation chapter 1, when John is receiving this revelation that he writes and transmits as as the book that we're looking at, he sees a vision of Christ. And in chapter 1, starting with verse 12, we read this. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He sees a revelation of the risen Christ, and his reaction is to prostrate himself in worship, in fear, in awe, in reverence. This is the Son of God. This is God himself. And so he recognizes the purity of his glory. And so, first of all, the glory of God is completely pure. We need to understand that. Secondly, the glory of God is completely perfect. Completely perfect. That is, it needs nothing. We, shouldn't, we cannot add to it. We dare not subtract from it. Now, understand that when we talk about glorifying God or giving glory to God, it's not as though we are able to add anything to him. We are not giving him something that he does not already possess. David Hagopian explains it this way. When we say that our primary reason for living is to glorify God, we do not mean that we add more glory to the all-glorious God of the universe or somehow make him more glorious in his essence. After all, you cannot add a drop of water to a full bucket. The psalmist says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Magnify to make great. When we think in those terms, don't think of a magnifying glass, which is what we need because something is so small, we need help so that we can see it. Think rather in terms of a telescope when we are trying to see something that is so vast and immense that we need help to see it. When we glorify God, we are reaching toward him, trying to explain, to express how wonderful he is, how perfect, how pure, how complete, how holy, how righteous. On the other hand, we should never subtract from God's glory. 
Once again, this is the genius of the Reformation, is that they understood that our salvation is of God completely and fully. We must not subtract any glory from God by giving ourselves glory. John Calvin wrote, Thus indeed it is. We never truly glory in him until we have utterly discarded our own glory. It must therefore be regarded as a universal proposition that whoso glories in himself glories against God. The sum is that man cannot claim a single particle of righteousness to himself without at the same time detracting from the glory of the divine righteousness. The great English preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, If I add one stitch to the garment of my salvation, I am lost. One stitch. He recognized that his salvation was completely and fully of God, not of himself. And for that, he gives praise to God. As a summation, we can't do much better than Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and to him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. God is the genesis, the governor, and the goal of creation. And he's also the genesis, the governor, and the goal of the new creation in Jesus Christ as well. Then finally, let's look at the glory of God, completely praiseworthy. Before we look at Revelation 4 and 5 in more detail, we want to look first at the historical context of the book. We want to look at the book's place in Scripture as a whole and in terms of Revelation. My best friend used to say that a text without a context is simply a pretext for whatever the preacher wants to say. And he was right. He still is. Most errors of interpretation of the Bible come from decontextualization, taking something out of its context, taking a chapter out of context or a verse, sometimes even a word out of context. How many times have you heard part of a conversation and didn't hear the whole conversation and you came away with a totally different point of view as to what was being said because you didn't have all of the context? So let me encourage you, whenever you're studying scripture, always look at the context. Look at the verses around it, the chapters around it. Where is it in the history of Revelation? The historical context. The book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John from exile on the island of Patmos, probably near the end of the first century A.D., And it was written to a church undergoing persecution. The Caesars were persecuting believers and the Christians. And so this was written to them to encourage them. We also, as we read the scripture, need to remember, you know, this Bible didn't come in this form dropped down to us by an Amazon drone. It was written over thousands and thousands of years and compiled that way. And we need to remember the people to whom this particular book first came, it was written by real men under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to real people in real circumstances. 
And so when this book was first written, Christians were being persecuted and killed for their faith. And John writes this letter to encourage them. As Jesus said in the very first, uh, very first verse of the book, the revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Now, where does this book of Revelation fit in Scripture? Obviously, it is the last book of Scripture. What you may not realize is that John, in this book, alludes to every Old Testament book with the exception of Ruth, Ecclesiastes, and Haggai. And in every one of the chapters, there are references to various New Testament books as well. So this truly is the capstone of Scripture. He makes references to all of Scripture. Now, the book of Revelation itself, chapter 1, is a prologue in which the scene is set. John receives a vision of Christ who tells him, this is what I want you to tell, this is what is about to come. Then chapters 2 and 3 are letters to seven churches in Asia, what is uh, modern-day Turkey. Then chapters 4 through the beginning of chapter 22 is a series of visions. John has a number of different visions that show what is to come. And then the end of chapter 22 is the prologue. So chapters 4 and 5 come at the beginning of this series of visions. Now chapter 4 and 5 is really describing one scene in heaven. I didn't read both chapters in the sake of time, but what we're going to do is we're going to look particularly at a series of five choruses that appear in the chapters 4 and 5. We're not going to try and look at every word, but I do want to focus your attention on these five choruses. In the original Greek, these are set in verse form, and the NIV, the translators have in their version as well, put it in verse form, which is proper and it's helpful too. You can spot them right away. Now, as we go through these choruses, I want you to keep in mind who it is that is singing, to whom are they singing, and what are they praising him for. And as we go through, I want you to see that there is a definite progression. So let's look at the first chorus. The first chorus is in Revelation 4, verse 8. The scene is that God is seated on the throne, and around him are these four living creatures that have various looks. One is like a lion, one like an ox, one like a man, and one like an eagle. And then around the four living creatures are 24 elders. And so chapter 4, verse 8, it says that the four living creatures are praising God. Here's the first chorus. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. So it's being sung by the four living creatures. They're praising God, the one who sits on the throne, and they're praising him for his attributes, for who he is. They praise him because he is holy, because he is almighty, and because he is eternal. And as they do this, the 24 elders fall down and praise. But they're not to be stopped because then the next chorus comes from the 24 elders, and that's in Chapter 4, verse 11. And the elders, as they lay down their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created 
and have their being. So the 24 elders are now the ones who take up the song of praise to God. And they praise God this time for his work of creation. He created all things. All things have their being. So what you see happening is that the size of the chorus is swelling, is growing. And the reasons they praise God, they continue to add. First, who he is, now for his work of creation. But interestingly, after this chorus, we don't see more praise, we see weeping. There's a little interlude here where John reports that Jesus, or God is on the throne. He has a scroll written on both sides, meaning that the revelation is complete and it is sealed. And he says there needs someone to come and open that scroll. Now, the one who has the authority and the power to open that scroll would not only be able to reveal God's plan, but also to execute it. And so John weeps because there's no one found who's worthy. And he weeps because he fears God's plan would not be carried out. But, of course, there is one worthy. And one of the elders points out to him, look in front of the throne, the lamb, as if he is slain, the lion of the tribe of Judah, is the one who is worthy. And of course, it is Jesus Christ. As the lion of the tribe of Judah, he fulfills the prophecy that Jacob made in Genesis 49. He is the one out of whose hands the scepter will not depart. He is the one who is the true, the perfect, the final king. And as the lamb, the one who was slain, he is the one to whom that Passover lamb in Exodus 12 pointed forward to. He is the lamb slain for his people that Isaiah 53 talks about. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist told his disciples. And so, because of this, now a new chorus takes up. And in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, the four living creatures and the 24 elders sing this song to Jesus. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And you see now they're praising the Son for his work of redemption. And notice the centrality of the cross. They said, you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God your people. There are echoes here of Hebrews chapter 9, where the writer to the Hebrews talks about how Christ is the complete and perfect sacrifice that all those Old Testament sacrifices pointed forward to. And in in verse 10, he says, you've made them to be a kingdom and priests, to serve our God. An echo there of 1 Peter chapter 2 where he says very similar words. And then, that's not enough. The four living creatures, the 24 elders, now we've got a big increase in the choir. And he looks and he hears the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000, millions of angels And they encircle the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the Lamb and God. And they sing this new song saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. 
Imagine that. Millions of angels singing these words to the one on the throne and to the Lamb, to him who was slain to receive power. There are echoes here of Daniel 7, where the Son of Man comes to him on the throne and receives power. There's echoes of 1 Chronicles 29, where David praises God using similar words. And notice, there are seven attributes that they ascribe to him. Power, wealth, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, praise. Seven is a number of completeness, number of perfection. We see that all throughout the book of Revelation. But that's not enough. As glorious as this chorus is, it still needs more. And so John looks, and the four living creatures are praising, the 24 elders, the millions of angels, but even more, he says, then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. We've sung that today. That's what John saw. Every sentient being in the universe praising God, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Now every creature in heaven and earth is singing, and they're singing to the Father and the Son together, praising them for their eternal rule. We hear echoes here of Philippians chapter 2, where Paul tells us every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Remember again, this letter was written to Christians being persecuted and put to death by the Caesars. And the Caesars proclaimed that they were Lord. And John here says, oh no, Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. He is praised equally with the Father. He is the one that deserves to receive the praise. He's the one who has conquered. So take heart, Christians. Your Lord lives, and he will redeem you. He will complete his redemption. All glory and praise be to him. Handel, in his oratorio, Messiah, did well to end it with this chorus and with the amen that the four living creatures say over and over again. The praises continue to increase and swell till they literally fill heaven and earth. The next slide you'll see, there's just a summary of the choruses. And again, you can see in graphic form how they continue to increase the number of people involved in singing. To whom are they singing? The reasons that they are praising him. It just continues to grow and to grow and to grow. And finally, Paul's doxology of Romans 11.36 comes to fruition. Everything from him, through him, for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. R.C. Sproul Jr. says this about uh, this particular sola. All of the creation then is wrapped up in this final sola, soli deo gloria. Here among the solas, we look beyond God's relationship to man and consider instead God's relationship to reality, to the creation. It is one grand stage, a display of the glory of God. 
Many years ago, I knew an inmate uh, named John who was crippled in his hands and his legs and had a very severe speech impediment, so severe that at times it was difficult to understand him. But he was still able to speak eloquently. Once in a Bible study in prison, the question was asked, what has Christ done for you? How much has Christ loved you? And this dear brother, though he wasn't able to speak well, gave a simple and eloquent answer. He simply said, Christ loved me so much, he gave himself for me. He sacrificed himself on the cross for my sins. That's how much he loved me. Is that your testimony today? Is that the Christ whom you love and serve? Is he the one who means everything to you, to whom you should give all glory? Isaac Watts, the hymn writer, understood that. He wrote, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's what's demanded of us. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. The French Protestants of the 16th century, known as the Huguenots, were persecuted and driven from France, and many of them made their way to Geneva, Switzerland, where Calvin was preaching and where he had a psalter made, the Genevan Psalter, and they set to verse all 150 psalms of the psalms. And so these Huguenots learned to speak or learned to sing these songs, and they loved these psalms so much so that when they went back to France, They would sing these psalms not only during worship, but during their work, when they were in the fields, when they were in the shop. In fact, people knew who the Huguenots were because they would overhear them singing the psalms. Is that our testimony? Do people know that we are believers because they see the doxology in our lives? They see us living in praise to God. Do others see that in us? Pastor and author Joel Beakey says, Soli Deo Gloria is the Calvinist's highest ambition. No other goal or desire can measure up to living for God's glory. The true Calvinist finds purpose and joy in glorifying God. By grace, he believes, knows, loves, and lives the doxology. And if you recall, in our bulletin reflections, Francis Schaeffer talked about us not only singing, but being the doxology. Does doctrine lead to doxology in your life? Does your life say, praise God from whom all blessings flow? Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above you heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are amazed and humbled at your glory. Lord Jesus, we are almost speechless when we truly understand how much you have done for us. We pray that you would loose our tongues, loose our lives, enable us 
to sing, to speak, to praise you, to fulfill the purpose for which you created us, and that is to worship you and to enjoy you forever. Lord, may you be given the glory that you and you alone deserve, now and forevermore. Amen.